This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Visit our historic campus and see how we prepare ministers of the gospel for faithful service. Learn more at sbts.edu visit. The God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible, Gideon's God, did that for him. How amazing is that? And yet God's like, no, 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 no. This is not about me winning your battles. This is about me winning your heart. Gideon, I want you to trust me. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, What God Cares About Winning, was preached by Aaron Weiss at Mission Hill Church in Calgary, Alberta, on February the 3rd, 2019. The text is Judges chapter 7. Listen now to Aaron Weiss on What God Cares About Winning. Well, if you've been walking with us, we're in a a series uh, in the book of Judges. And and Judges is kind of an obscure book. We've been saying that from the beginning. In fact, there's likelihood that many of you really haven't uh, gone into depth with Judges, and that's okay. Um, But what we're doing through this series is we want to use it to highlight our the problem that's both in the Bible and our human condition, and that's sin. And we've been identifying, we've been kind of speaking to this condition as our turning away from God, our decision to say, not your way, but my way, because there's this cyclical pattern that happens throughout the book of Judges where God's people um, rebel against God by saying, not your way, but ours. They turn away from him, and he lovingly says, well, if that's what you want, go in that direction. And as they reap the consequences of that, as foreign nations and people groups are uh, suppressing them and and just um, putting them into a position of uh, just a lowly state. Actually, if you look at chapter 6, it says that Israel was brought low. They cry out to God, and he raises up for them these, they're called judges, but think champions. Think military heroes to rescue them, to restore them, and to uplift and encourage them. And this pattern continues over and over and over again. And we've been focusing in on, on a character named Gideon, which we're going to read about again this morning. And one of the things in this text that I invite you to to kind of look at it from this lens is it it gives us invitation to consider our perspectives, the way in which we look at ourselves and our circumstances. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Genesis chapter 7. We're looking at the whole chapter, but we won't read all of it for time's sake. Uh, But it'll also be on the screen behind me. This is Judges chapter 7, reading verse 1 to 9 and then 16 to 23. It says this, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, 
And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let the others go, home, go Sorry, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and they sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise and go against the camp, for I have given, you, given it sorry, into your hand. Verse 16. And he divided the, men, the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets into their hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp. And at the beginning of the middle of the watch, when they had just set the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, and the three hundred companies sorry, and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they held in their hands and torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord sent every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zareth, as far as the border of Abel Morlah and Tabath. These are great names. And the men of Israel call, were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. A, a strange story. One that uh, arguably might inspire courage, but might be difficult for us to find something this morning. And, and as I spent the week, and actually a little longer, uh, kind of chewing on it and meditating on it, something clicked for me that was really where our hearts need to go this morning. And it's amazing how we evaluate things, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing how we instinctively assess our situation and our circumstance and, and ourselves to decide whether or not we have good odds in a situation. The, the precursor to this story is that the Midianites are this amassed group. The, the Bible tells like they're like this horde of people who come into the land, eat up all the crops, take over like crazy because of their massive size and amassed numbers, and just force everybody to literally go and hide in the rocks and the cracks of the land so that they don't get eaten up and kind of consumed by their uh, imposing size, and then they leave, and what's left is just devastation. And so God raises up this guy named Gideon, who when we meet him in chapter 6, he's just kind of going, God, I'm a nobody. Like, why would you even pick or select me to this task? And God says, I will go with you. And in a moment of maybe just obedience, because I don't know if we can even call it courage at this point, he goes around and he starts recruiting men and he gets 32,000, which is not, nothing to really sneeze at. That's actually a good gathering of soldiers, in fact, as we read the text, we, we seem to think that the Israelites are so dispersed and so scared and so hidden amongst the land that we're amazed that, wow, there's 32,000 men willing to fight. And then God speaks to Gideon and he says, you have too many. 
That is a profound and, and strange moment. And you have to begin thinking about this idea of perspective, this idea of how we evaluate and assess. When God says to Gideon, Gideon, great job. Your recruitment skills are awesome, but you actually have too many. In fact, um, Scripture says that as they look down on the valley, as they look at the encampment of the Midianite and Amalekite army who have kind of joined forces against God's people, it says that there's too much, too, like there's so many they couldn't keep count. So you, you have to imagine, it's the image of, you know, Gideon being, uh, you know, a good leader saying, go and, and spy out the camp, give me a rough estimate of what we're up against. And they come back and they're like, lost count. Like, I mean, we tried multiplication, and we tried, you know, looking at it from different angles, and we just couldn't count them. In fact, one commentary suggests roughly 120,000 soldiers amassed against them. Four to one, as a conservative guess. And God says to him, four to one, and, and you still have too many. And it's not that, and in that moment, we need to clarify, it's not that God's saying, your resources are too plentiful that I just can't use them. I, just, I only operate when it only looks really bleak and dire. It's actually, he's saying this, that your hearts will be prone to give yourself credit because your resources are so strong. 32,000 is a pretty good army. Even though the army that you're facing is four times your size, it's enough men, it's enough firepower at your disposal that you might actually think, you know what, with good strategy, with the element of surprise, and maybe some luck, we might be able to pull this off. And if we do, we'll look really good. So God says to Gideon, lest you think you're the one, lest your men think they're the ones who are victorious you have too many men, and he reduces them. And, and the way in which he does that is completely demoralizing. Could you imagine a modern-day military? Anyone who doesn't want to fight, you can go home. Your honorable discharge. And two-thirds of the army pack up and go. I mean, that, that would have been completely demoralizing for not just Gideon, but the men who remained. Like, you can imagine going, I recruited 32,000 and 22,000 lead because they're like, oh, like, I'm, I'm having second thoughts, you know, feeling a little tired from the night before. I don't have to fight. Great. I'm going to go home. And now 10,000 remain. And I mean, if you're an optimist, you might be thinking, well, look on the bright side. You got 10,000 men who want to fight. At least you're bringing the guys who, who are chomping at the bit to get into battle. But you're now reduced to one-third of your original army. And then God says, you know, Gideon, you still have too many. And then there's this weird thing where he's like, take them down to the river, watch how they drink, and we'll make a selection process. Uh, I've heard people um, use this in, in a sense that's just way overanalyzed, where they go, God was just really picking out the cream of the crop. You know, he didn't want any scaredy cats. And then he wanted um, soldiers who were alert and on, on, on they were ready for battle. Because the image that we kind of get lost when it says laps like dogs you know, that God used the dog lappers? They're like, what does that mean? It's an image of those who literally dunk their face into the stream and drink were sent back to their tents and those who cupped the water and then brought it to their face. I heard commentaries say that's because they were vigilant and aware that they were in a dangerous place. It just looks like God's just being arbitrary. I just have too many and we're just going to narrow this down. 
I don't want odds of four to one. I want odds of 400 to one. And then you're ready to go. I mean, read the text for yourself. That's what God's doing. Gideon, 400 to one. That sounds good. And you could imagine Gideon's heart when he had 32,000 soldiers. Then you could imagine his heart when he had 10,000. Imagine his heart when he had 300. And by the way, there's no mention of weaponry in this passage. Now, I think it would be dangerous for us to assume that they had nothing, that who would amass and call men to battle and then just say, but, you know, we'll find sticks. But they're not mentioned. They're not, they're not described as being well prepared for battle. In fact, they seem to have a, a massive amount of trumpets. You know, join that army. Guys, we're going we're gonna to warm up with marching band, and then we've got a pl- plenty of jars, you know, like this, we're well supplied. I don't understand that, but this is, this is what the circumstances are looking like. The author is trying to draw out one simple thing. Odds don't look good. Gideon is, is actually, this is his debut, by the way, as, as a military leader for his people. This is his opening, like he's like general in training, and he's lost, he went from having 32,000 to 300 men. He is woefully outmatched and undersupplied, and God's like, now you're ready. You see, it begs the question of what in our life are we so resourced that God can't do a work in our life? where we're so filled with what we think is a strength that God goes, actually, no, that's creating an obstacle for me doing a profound work in your life because if I were to do anything there, and again, it's not that God can't use our resources. It's that God's trying to do a work where he's trying to demonstrate to Gideon, it's not you who's going to win the battle, it's me. You see, if this was all about God trying to look really strong, God could have done this a hundred different ways. He could have just been like, Gideon, go up the mountain, get a nice, you know, bird's eye view of the camp and watch this. <laughs> Squish him. That was me. Write that one down and tell everybody about it because I did it. That would have been amazing. Or he could have opened up the earth and everyone fell in. Or he could have just lightning strikes like crazy and, and Gideon would have been like, God, you're awesome. That was all you. This was great. And everyone would have known the God of the Israelites, the God of the Bible, Gideon's God, did that for him. How amazing is that? And yet God's like, no, 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 no. This is not about me winning your battles. This is about me winning your heart. Gideon, I want you to trust me. Gideon, I want you to get out there. I want you to know that it's me fighting for you, but it's me fighting through you. Scripture says that God uses the lowly things to oppose the strong, the weak things to confound what we think is, is strength. That God's going, you think you know what resources are. Let me show you. I can do more with an obedient heart filled with courage, and by the way, debatable as we look at Gideon's life, than I can with all the resources that you think will win the battle. See, uh, there's a passage which I've mentioned a few times in the last few weeks because I think it overlays with judges very well, but it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul writes of what he calls the thorn in his flesh 
It's a metaphor speaking to something that God actually enabled and allowed and gifted to him in his life to be a, a trouble, to be very cumbersome, to be very painful. And we don't know if it's physical, spiritual, emotional, or all of the above, but he says, I, I pleaded to God to take this away from me, and God's response was, nope. I've given that to you so that you would know my grace is sufficient for you and my power made perfect in your weakness. And Paul's heart, after he understands the gift of the thorn in his flesh was, I'll boast all the more in my weakness because it's when I'm weak that God is revealed as strong. But what God's doing in Paul's life is this. I don't want you proud. I don't want you confident. I don't want you so boastful in the resources that you think are strength, I want you to know where your strength comes from, and that's in me. And the only way to do that is to keep you weak. Gideon, I want you weak. I want you weak to know that this battle is only going to be won if the Lord does it. The, the, in other words, the bus isn't going to go if the wheels fall off and I'm the one holding them on. I feel like this as a church planner all the time. I just feel like, man, half the time our church is held together by duct tape. Not in a literal sense, but and I, and it reminds me that man, if if God doesn't lead, if He doesn't show up, no matter all the resources I feel like we can bring to the table, it doesn't matter. He is strongest in our weakness, and so God wants us in our weakness because. As Gideon steps into battle, and by the way, we we skipped over right in the middle of the passage a really cool story which I'll, I'll just paraphrase for you, but I, I encourage you to go back in your own time and read it. But God just says to Gideon as he diminishes his army to 300 men. And you can imagine the exchange there. Like, now you're ready. Are you kidding? Like, what are we going to do, God? I mean, this, this is a suicide mission. Even if we escape, there's nowhere, you know, there's no chance anyone's ever going to go to battle with me again because this is just, this is going to be a devastating defeat. I can't, I can't be hearing you right. If I am hearing you right, this is just insanity. I just don't understand it. And so God, in his kindness, says, Gideon, if you're feeling fearful, it shouldn't be if, knowing that you are fearful, sneak down to the enemy camp, bring one of your men with you, and listen to what they're saying. And so we have this picture of they, they sneak down into the camp and, and it's either the, the, you know, there's not a lot of details given, either they're hiding just in earshot where they can hear, or I actually picture them walking right up to the campfire because there's so many people there. It's like, I don't even know who you are. We're just all here. Uh, and they sit amongst the campfire for a moment and they start listening to the enemy soldiers. And one of them says this, guys, I had a dream. I had a dream that a cake of barley rolled down the hill, hit a tent, and knocked it over. And everyone gasps. And one guy says, that is none other than the sword of Gideon. Where did he get that? Like, one, that doesn't sound very intimidating to me. Like, I'd be going, that was a weird dream. What did you eat last night? <laughs> Two, how, how, how are they interpreting it as a negative thing towards them? Like, does that mean we're going to tumble into the enemy camp and knock it over? Awesome. But it's this collective understanding of that must mean God's against us and Gideon is going to knock us out. How do they even know who Gideon is? See, one commentary I thought was, was helpful on this, actually Charles Spurgeon writes that, that barley was food for the dogs. 
And so no one who thought much of themselves would associate themselves with barley as a metaphor or as an analogy. And so that would have certainly been the Israelites who were lowly. That this essentially like leftovers came rolling down the hill and they struck a tent and they knocked it over. Like who would have thought something so obscure could cause that much damage and they interpreted it as something's coming and we're not going to be able to stop it. And then they say, that could none other be that the sword of Gideon. I think there's such irony in that when they talk about the sword of Gideon, when there's nothing in this passage to say he even has a sword. That's the sword of Gideon. Really? Like Gideon's probably listening to this going like, they don't even know I don't have one. I got a trumpet. Gideon leaves the campfire and his heart is overflowing. It says that he, he praises the Lord and he rallies his men that very night saying, guys, God's given them into our hands. Why? He hears this dream. He hears this fear. The, the only reputation that from the text that we could see is they understand that this dude named Gideon, is, 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 he's kind of out there knocking on doors, rallying an army, and that's about it. He's got no prowess or reputation as a leader as of yet, and yet they're fearing his name. Why is that? God is already moving in the camp, and Gideon for a moment gets a picture of how the enemy perceives him, and they're fearful. You see, it's, a, it's amazing how we evaluate ourselves. And every now and then, not because God has to, but because he's gracious and merciful to do it, he gives us this glimpse of how others see us. He gives us this glimpse of how the enemy sees us. And they don't see weak and, and trembling people. They, they see powerfully clothed in righteousness and in strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you think I'm adding to that, look at chapter 6, verse 34, where it says that God clothed Gideon through the Spirit. That when God called Gideon, he said, Gideon, I want you to get out there and fight. I want you to raise an army. And Gideon's like, who am I? And he's like, go in this might of yours. The might that he had was not that deep down inside, Gideon was actually a really good you know, strategic warrior and fighter in general. It's actually that God says, I'm going with you, and the might you have is me. And I'm not going anywhere. You can trust me. I'm with you on this. God doesn't only just reveal to Gideon how he's seen from the outside looking in, but he reveals to Gideon, Gideon, I've got you. I'm good for my promise. I can do this with 300 men. In fact, he's so bolstered in his confidence that he, he rallies the men that night and he's like, God's gonna do it. And there's, there's actually no real clue that God, God and Gideon have this little exchange where he's like, okay, I want you to get trumpets and jars and torches and, and do the following. Gideon, it, it seems, he just comes up with it, that plan himself. And God's like, okay, this is not how I would have done it, but I'll bless it. And what happens in, in the fight? I, I love this picture, not, not because it's gruesome. Don't, don't hear that. I love it because it, it's just, it would have been profound to watch. Picture yourself among 300 soldiers with, they probably have weapons, but none, none to speak of with any great confidence. In, in fact, your, your two hands aren't filled with weaponry. They're filled with a concealed torch and a trumpet. And Gideon's like, guys, I got this great plan. 
We're going to sneak up. There's 400 to 1, but don't you be worried because God's going to bring about a great victory. You're thinking one of two things. God's going to pull this off or we're dead. Like this is my last night, one way or the other. It's my last night not trusting God or it's just my last night and then I'll probably see God. Um, so one way or the other, this is going to be very interesting. And they go to the camp and they sm- like it's this kind of psychological warfare. Like they create this wall that would look like an amassed army assuming battle positions, but then they don't move. And as the men wake up, they're panicked and they begin striking each other down and they're fighting and they're like, Gideon's amongst us and they're just stabbing each other. And, and you kind of would, you would watch that from the, the lines of battle going like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is working. I can't believe after, you know, 10 minutes they didn't figure it out. And God does a, a great victory that day. Actually, the battle doesn't end there. It, pres- it continues into the next chapter where there's this mop-up operation where all of a sudden Gideon is just, he's just on fire, both as a general and passionate to bring this to an end, to, to a result that's favorable for God's people and honoring to the Lord. Like, we just go, wow, how did that happen? You see, there's this amazing moment in the story which we kind of skip over but I think it's profound. As the, as the men shout, they say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Isn't it amazing that Gideon gets a footnote? Like, who won the battle? God did. We don't, we don't get much of an indication that, that Gideon's men did anything. In, in fact, what they did was, was mainly just having the courage to just show up. And God just does this clean sweep And yet Gideon gets to be a footnote in the story. See, as a foreshadow, that's actually going to become a a real danger for Gideon's heart in later chapters to come. But in this moment, it's a profound gift. Because God wants to use use you and your weakness. He knows you more intimately than you know yourself. He knows all the things that you would present and say, this is my strength. This is what I bring to the table. But behind all that, hidden behind us is our weaknesses, and he knows that incredibly well. And it's not that he didn't give you gifts and strengths and abilities to be used. It's just he's, he's interested in all of you, and most often than not, in fact, biblically, I have a really strong argument, he, I'm more, he's more interested in your weakness. You know, consider some of the characters of the Bible. Consider Joseph, who he just had a, a real grand and overinflated view of himself, yet God wanted to use him to save a nation. You know, consider Moses, who's like, I don't like speaking, but God's like, I'm going to use you to declare my word and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Consider Aaron, Moses' brother, who um, in fear brings all of God's people into idolatry and rebellion against God. And through irony, God's like, but I want you to be the high priest of all these people and you'll be the mediator between me and them. Consider David, who is a runt. And yet God's like, you're going to be a giant slayer and a warrior. God's interested in your weaknesses, Consider Paul, destroyer of the church, turned into amazing church planter who writes most of our New Testament. God uses the lowly things to completely confound the strong. Because he's not in the business of winning your battles. God 
watches all of this from being removed from space and time. It's not that he's like, oh, I'm really concerned about this Midianite army. He knows they're going to come and go. He actually knows, guys, I'm going to save you a little bit later. You're going to fall into rebellion again. We're going to be back to this all over again. He's, he's not stressing the battle. He's going, I just want your hearts. I want you, and I want you to realize that what you bring to the table is not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is your weakness, because then I get all of you. Have you ever noticed that when you present yourself, at least if you're trying, <laughs> you present your best face forward? You know, you, you want to brag on your accomplishments and your achievements and all the good things and all the other stuff. You just, you try and put that aside. We just do that instinctively. This week, I, I got to do uh, something I just love, and I'm so grateful as a church that we, you guys free me up to do this, but uh, I'm coaching alongside a few other pastors, seven church planters in our city, and uh, we're about four to five years ahead of these guys and, and just pouring into them as they're praying through, investigating, and preparing to plant churches around and in and around Calgary, and, and we're just walking alongside them like a big brother church. And so we took them out to, to Canmore for two days just to kind of um, put the gas pedal down on relationship building. These guys are going to, we're going to be walking with them one full day a month, walking through some intentional discipleship curriculum and just life on life kind of stuff. And pity them because I get to be their mentor. And as I'm hanging out with these guys, we're just sharing our stories. And I can say this without giving anything away, like the most broken stories you've ever heard. You, you would think that if God's raising up people in the city of Calgary to plant new works, be bold, be entrepreneurial, do new things, you'd be like, I'm going to take the cream of the crop. And as we hear these stories, I'm like, we are all messed up. Pity our city. Like, it was just like, wow. And then as we're, we're sharing this, you know, I, I just said, guys, I got to encourage you. Because God's not going to use your strength, he's going to use your weakness. And I can tell you that because I'm just a little bit ahead of you, and I can tell you this, God has not used any of our strengths at Mission Hill Church. Actually, he's used our weakness, and he's been glorified in that. As we've just said, God, this is really painful, it's really hard, we want to trust you, we want to be humble, so use our weaknesses, and he has. In fact, what qualifies me to teach you is not that I'm a rock star church planner, it's that I just want God to work through my weakness. And it was just this profound conversation of, if we're willing to do that, God will have a greater increase. You'll see him show up in profound ways. And that's our story. I'd encourage you, grab me, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a coffee, I'll show you what God's been doing in our church. And it'll be just the kind of thing where you're like, wow, that is clearly not you guys. That's what God's doing. And that only happens when we say, God, here's my weakness. I'm done I'm done hiding that part of me. I know you want all of me. So here it is. And God doesn't do that so he can just go, I'm so good, let me show off. He's doing that so we understand, I love you that much. I'm sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. You can trust me, and I'm going to do a work. In fact, I, I love you that much that I'm willing to, to go that far for you. And what I love about it is this. We get to be a footnote in his story. Because when you consider this, what did we really contribute to the greatest work that God has ever done through it for us? 
that God would send his son in flesh to live the life we couldn't and die the death we deserve. What did we honestly contribute to that? We contributed our sin. Like you want to take credit? You can, but it's that you nailed him to a cross, that I nailed him to a cross. That Jesus modeled weakness, modeled humility. Not to, he puts his strength on display, but not to win a battle and say, I'm so good, but to win our hearts so that we would know he's good. See, the only thing we could ever contribute, the only footnote we get is, is our rebellion. And yet he takes that and he clothes us with the spirit. That we get to, we get to walk in a victory that's not our own. That's the gift that we're given through Jesus. That's the, the, the amazing gift he's given us. If, if you need more handles for how to understand that, there's a, a really cool story, uh, often misunderstood in actually, it's actually in all three of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They share a lot of the same resource. That's all that that really means. Um, but in Matthew 19, it says this, this is verse 16. It says, and behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And then he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I've heard that taught so many times and and misunderstood because on the surface, it almost sounds like Jesus is giving this statement of, you know, if you really want to be good, give it all away. And and yet, that wouldn't be held up. That really wouldn't hold water in light of all of Scripture. In fact, what what Jesus is doing, he's going, you're presenting all your strengths. You're coming up to me and you're like, hey, Jesus, what what could I do to enter eternal life? He's kind of setting Jesus up to to give him the pat answer, you know. He, He mentions the Ten Commandments. He's like, these are all the things. These are the big ones. Can you do that? And he's like, I've done it. Which we know in truth, no, he hasn't. He's He's messed up somewhere in his life. And yeah, he's like, no, I think my record's pretty good. Actually, I think, I'm, I, I think I'm exemplary in that matter. And I'm presenting you my strength. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack. Looks right past his strengths to his weakness. He says, give your possessions, give your wealth to the poor and then follow me. See, what was revealed under that was this man had a great love for the wealth and the comforts that he had. Jesus isn't saying we all need to go and sell all our possessions. He's speaking directly into one heart, one individual, one area of, of great struggle where his weakness was. He says, give that to me. And then I can do something. Actually says that he goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And, and scripture says Jesus had great compassion on him. You mean, God, you want to do a work in the area that, I, that I'm most unwilling to give you? In the area that I just, I most can't 
trust or, or don't believe that you can actually do something? You want to win a victory there and I'm not going to get any credit? Yes. That's what it is to follow Jesus. That he would take your weaknesses and create not just strength, but a brand new story. As he takes those and replaces them with his victory. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.